So we're going into our second week of this new series. Every summer we've said we're going to do a series on how to have better conversations because the, whether it's a four-minute conversation or you start hanging out with us long enough, whether it's fellowship group, one of the things we're about is teaching each other, practicing with each other how to have better conversations. And last summer, which was our first summer as a church, I said every summer I want to try to do a series related to this issue of how do we have better conversations. Because I see this as a fundamental issue in our society today, which is we have lost the ability to have meaningful, substantial conversation with one another. Sort of the quality of our conversation, decade after decade, has regressed. Now the question is, how do we turn that ship around? I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has an important role to play in that. We are people who gather weekly to have big, substantial uh, conversation corporately like we're doing now, but this can't stop here. It has to spill out into our neighborhoods, into our living rooms, into our workplaces as we are the ones that are committed to taking conversations to places ultimately that they're meant to go, where people are encountered with the questions of life, of, of greatest concern. Who am I? What is true and real? Who is God? Why am I here? What am I about? Uh, we just need to be people that are talking about that. And there's all sorts of things that get in our way of why our conversational IQ, if you want to say it that way, has fallen to where it's at. And all, thing, all sorts of things we can do to sort of raise it back up. Last year we did a series called The Universe Next Door which talks about how people just have different starting places. They have different views of the world. Um, whether that's different religious views or just different pictures of, of, of the way the world is. And until we sort of do some of the fundamental work to figure out what those views might be, once we get into conversation, oftentimes we get scared or we get lost and so we sort of jump ship and we don't keep going. So that was last year. You can find those sermons online or through our newly minted Sedaris app if you haven't downloaded that. So you could go listen to that. And the reason I bring this up, I don't bring this up, ever, but these are some of the most important, I think, series that we will do as we try to actually make an impact in our city. So this year's Better Conversation series, this is our second week. We're calling it The Art of Persuasion. And it's based on a book that I recently read called Fool's Talk. And tonight we'll see particularly why this book is titled as it is by an author named Oz Guinness. And as we go through this series, I want us to remember the hope. The hope is to learn ourselves how to have better conversation, but to also see that better doesn't necessarily mean easier doesn't mean more comfortable, doesn't necessarily mean more enjoyable in the ways we've typically associated with. But when we have these better conversations, I guarantee you, you will experience a different type of enjoyment that you have never had before. So we'll do two things today. I just want to recap for, the, for those of us who weren't here two weeks ago, the main thesis uh, of our time together and of of the book that sort of spurred this series on. And then I want to look at that first key to the art of Christian persuasion in our day-to-day -day conversation. Okay? So let's pray 
and, and ask God to be with us as we try to accomplish this. Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for all the ways in which you move and work in our lives. We thank you that we see your power uh, through the heat of the last few days. We see the way you care for us through the people that you bring into our lives, through the food that you put on our table. We thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world, but you're with us in so many ways. We just want to recognize that right now. Help us to see you in all the things of life, the big and the small, and help us to see you tonight as we come to your word and study this text. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, recapping last week, we said the main thesis of the book and of our series is this. Os Guinness says, we have lost the art of Christian persuasion and we must recover it. And we broke that down last week. The first word, we. This is an all of us issue. You don't have to have a diploma, you don't have to have a degree in persuasion or preaching or Bible. This is an all of us issue. Every one of us is asked to be able to use our own ability, our own experience, our own knowledge, the head and the heart when we talk about Christ and his gospel. So this is an all of us issue. And then we say we've lost this art. This is something that has always been a part of the Christian church, and we'll see it today when we come to God's Word, that again and again and again, when we're told to talk about God and the Gospel, we're told to be persuasive and to do it artfully, and we've lost that ability. don't know exactly when we lost it, but I believe clearly we've lost it for the most part. And the next part of this equation is it's an art. This isn't a science, this is not a sales technique, it's an art. And so it'll be different with each person that we converse with, there's an art to it. And we must be creative and we must be fresh in the way we paint a picture of who God is and what the gospel is. And then finally we said it's Christian persuasion, which has some unique features. It's persuasion in that it's not simply data explanation. There is this hope that we move people. People long to be moved by things. And so when we talk about the gospel, we should seek to move people. So that's persuasion. It's not coercion. It's not forcing people to believe what we believe or to proclaim what we proclaim. So it's not coercion, there's no forcefulness to it, but it, but it is seeking to move. So that's persuasion, but it's Christian persuasion. And so we are held to the highest standard of honesty and sincerity and authenticity. We, we cannot lie in order to persuade. We cannot create fear in order to persuade. That is never what we're called to. So we've lost the art of Christian persuasion and we must recover it. And so this series will be about trying to recover a few of the pieces necessary to bring it back into our community and hopefully we can maybe teach others 
that are a part of, of other Christian communities and, and hopefully teach others who do not yet consider themselves to be followers of Jesus when they come to be that. Teach them how to speak persuasively in an artful way with others. Now, here's why this is so important. Why do we need to recover it? We have this problem. I mentioned this last week. People don't give their attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, you believe it's the most important thing in the world because it's the power to save. And people aren't giving their attention to it. The solution to this problem is Christians like me and like you speaking persuasively about the gospel. But there's a bottleneck to this solution actually happening. And the bottleneck is this. Not enough Christians are actually doing this, speaking persuasively. The cause of the bottleneck? There's certain elements within our culture and our society today, particularly in a place like Seattle, that have successfully convinced most Christians that they're not allowed to speak persuasively about the things of their faith. You can speak persuasively about anything else. You can speak persuasively about your political opinions. You can speak persuasively about social justice issues. But as soon as you start to speak persuasively, particularly about the Christian faith, you're shot down. And we've bought that lie that we're not allowed to for some reason because we are or have in the history of America been in sort of a majority position. We're the ones that aren't allowed to speak persuasively. I know I've bought that lie in my own life, and it's kept me quiet. And it's kept me maybe not quiet, but definitely muted. So the resolution to the bottleneck, which ultimately will create proper flow <laughs> to, to fix, to be the solution to the problem, is that we must expose the lie, recover the lost art, and hopefully then things start to move again. And people can encounter and give their attention to the most beautiful thing that there ever was, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Important to say that again so that you understand why we're doing this. Maybe you're not yet a Christian and, and you've come in here and you say, wow, this isn't going to be for me. I think there's something in it for you tonight. I hope that when I speak about these issues, I speak passionately and persuasively because ultimately, speaking in this way, conversing in this way, is an act of love. Because if the gospel is true and I don't speak persuasively about it, I'm not loving the people in my life. So hopefully you see that. Hopefully you'll consider whether or not it's actually true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Let me start with a funny story as I go into this first key to recovering the art of Christian persuasion. Uh, this story is almost related to today's topic, but I want to tell it because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so it's almost related. Just give me a little grace here, okay? Um, I went to a wedding this weekend. Been up since 4 a.m. this morning was down at my buddy Brandon's wedding in Galveston, Texas. Uh, Brandon sort of, it all happened pretty fast. 
He met a, started dating this girl end of April this year, got engaged July 4th, got married yesterday. So it all happened pretty fast. And maybe all the details didn't come together. So I was down in Galveston with Allie. It was our first big trip away from Grayson. It was great for our marriage. We had a great time. It was an amazing weekend. We slept in. It was great. And I was in party mode. I had nothing to do for this wedding. I was just there to support my buddy Brandon. And so, of course, I'm walking down Strand Street in Galveston, Texas, a little bit like, you know, New Orleans. If you've ever been to New Orleans, it's kind of not clean, <laughs> but fun, okay? So, walking down the street, and we go into this store, I see a beautiful, beautiful um, pink tank top, bro tank. And I'm thinking about my buddy Brett, you know, the best <laughs> bro tank wearer I know. And I'm like, I got to get a bro tank. I mean, I can wear it at Sunday morning volleyball, when I'm doing chores around the house. It's great for washing dishes. So I got to get this pink Galveston uh, tank top. So I buy the tank top. I'm wearing it around. I don't really know that many people at this wedding, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm not going to see anybody I know. We go back to the hotel, and um, our hotel... The Tremont Hotel is right next door to the event center where the wedding's going to be held, okay? <laughs> and we're up in our room, and we've been invited to the rehearsal dinner, so we've got to get ready for the rehearsal dinner, and we valeted, parked our car, and Allie's forgotten her bag in the car with the hairspray, you know what I'm talking about? Got the hairspray and some other stuff, she's got to have it. I said, do you really need it? She says, I need to have I need it. I need it. And I said, are you sure? They had a bit of an argument. <laughs> I lost the argument. And I'm headed down, and I don't have any money to pay the valet, so I feel bad. Just tell him to go get this for me. So I'm like, let me walk with you. Maybe I'll start a conversation, you know, preaching out this week. So I'm walking with the guy. We're talking. We don't really get anywhere substantial, but that's okay. I get the bag. I'm walking back, and there's these big windows at the event center across the way, and I'm walking down the sidewalk. I'm still wearing my pink tank top. And all of a sudden, Brandon pops his head out of the, the, the side door, says, Dave, come in here. I never met any of the other people in the wedding besides Brandon. I'm in my pink tank top. He says, come here, come here, come here. He says, can you read scripture at our wedding? <laughs> I said, oh, no. <laughs> uh, he says, come on in. I'll introduce you to everybody. So I walk in, and he's just pulled this guy off the street wearing a pink Galveston bro tank. And he says, this is my buddy Dave. He's going to be reading scripture at the wedding. <laughs> and I swear, everyone just looks at me. I felt like a fool. That's how it's connected. I felt like a fool. But you know what? I read that scripture, and I read it loud, and I read it proud, and I'll forever be remembered. And I had, like, old women coming up to me and being like, oh, you're the guy in that tank top. I'm like, that was me. They're like, all right. Now, the story was redeemed because my buddy Brandon loved my tank top, and he's like, dude, can you buy me? one of those tank tops. So I was able to give it to him as his wedding gift. I gave him a pink Galveston bro tank. So 
There are times in life where we feel like a fool. But the question is, are you going to run from that or are you going to stick in it and read that scripture? Okay, so I read that scripture. And this is the first key to becoming persuasive. And that's learning to be comfortable being a fool. Learning to be comfortable being a fool. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. It's going to be near the back of your Bible. You can Google it on your phone if you want. Look it up on the table of contents. Acts 26. And the book of Acts is really um, a a recounting of the beginning of the Jesus movement. So it's after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He ascends into heaven at the beginning of Acts, and then it's a story of how the church began to grow. And we get to Acts chapter 26, and, and there's really two big characters in the book of Acts. There's several minor characters, but two main characters. The first half of Acts is a lot about Peter, who was establishing the church in Jerusalem, uh, right there where Jesus uh, did most of his ministry. And then there's uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he was really the apostle to all the non-Jewish nations of the time. And he made it all the way to Rome, in fact. But before he goes to Rome, he takes a trip back to Jerusalem, and there he is arrested. And he's brought before King Agrippa in Jerusalem, and he's having to make a defense for himself of why he's doing the things he's doing, saying the things he's saying, uh, preaching the things that he's preaching about this Jesus, sharing the good news of his death, his resurrection. And so they've arrested him and and asked him to give an account. What's going on? Uh, Defend yourself. And so Paul begins to share his story of conversion. And he shares about how he had been persecuting the early Christians until he had an experience in which he encountered the risen Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus. And he's telling this story. And I'm sure he's not telling it muted. He's probably telling it as he always told it, with full passion and conviction about what he had experienced. And it was this moment that changed the trajectory of his life. He went from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Jesus Christ to all the nations. And he suffered a lot for that because Jesus had appeared to him. And as he's sharing this, he's interrupted by another of the court officials, a man by the name of Festus. So if you will, pick up with me in verse... Let's see. Verse 24. Festus interrupts Paul and says, 
And it says this, And as he, that's Paul, was saying these things in his own defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now look what Paul says in response. He's basically called him a fool. You're a fool, Paul. You sound crazy. This is what Paul says. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. Here's what Paul's saying. The king knows what's happened. He knows that this carpenter's son was crucified, and he knows about what people are claiming, that he's risen from the dead, and that they're giving their life for him. He's heard all these things, so I can speak freely to him. Don't interrupt me. Thank you very much. Paul continues, I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. King Agrippa would have been familiar with the ancient Jewish text that prophesied about the coming Messiah. Then King Agrippa said this to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Because he was, of course, imprisoned. I hope that you, King Agrippa, whether it's in a short amount of time or long, become as I am. And what was it that Paul was? What was Paul? Well, you don't have to turn there, but Paul in his own words explains what he saw himself as in 1 Corinthians 4. And this is written in your bulletin if you want to see the words for yourself. Paul describes what he is this way. For I think that God has exhibited us, the apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. And he says, I want you to become as I am. A fool for Christ. See, he knows what they think of him. And he doesn't care. He says, I am a fool for Christ. But I hope you become a fool for Christ like me. So that's our big question for the day. It's actually the big question for the rest of your life. Are you willing to be seen by the world as a fool for Christ's sake, for the sake of the gospel, are you willing to be labeled by friends, family, employers as a fool? Paul, in his own day and age, in his own context, 
I don't think it's that different from us here living in the city of Seattle in 2016. What do I mean by this? It wasn't popular to be seen as a fool. He lived in a very intellectual age. The people he spoke with often were the Greeks who were known for their great thinking and philosophy and rhetoric. And Paul had spent years and years and years studying so that he would never be seen as a fool. So like Paul, we live in a city, in an era that values intellectual prowess far above physical prowess or even moral prowess. We celebrate people like Steve Jobs. He is one of our heroes, right? Even our sitcoms have been overtaken by a type of person you never would have seen 30 years ago. Ever seen The Big Bang Theory? That guy is super famous. <laughs> it's the programmers, not the pugilists, that command our attention, especially in a city like Seattle. And so it's no surprise that in this city, in our country today, avoiding the label fool, I believe, is one of the most powerful motivators. We don't want people to think of us as foolish. So like Paul, we seek education and more education and advanced education. I've got two master's degrees. Partially because I did not want people to think of me a fool. So I better go get my credentials. I better go get taught up. Do you know Seattle's the most educated city in America? There are more advanced degrees per capita in Seattle than anywhere else. We are a city that hates even the thought that we might be considered a fool. With the internet, immediate access to information, we self-educate. Often not because we really want to know, but because we don't want to be seen not to know. So why, if Paul's living in a world like this, a world a lot like Seattle, 2016, why would he be so willing to be labeled a fool for Christ? And why... Would we ever want to join him and become like him, being seen as a fool? Here's the answer. Paul knew this. He knew that one, if you're willing to be seen as a fool for Christ, then you must actually know Christ. And you know that there is nothing better than knowing and encountering Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is nothing greater than that. And if you're willing to be called a fool for Him, it probably means that you've met Him personally. But it also means, and Paul knew this firsthand, 
if you're willing to be seen as a fool for Christ, he knew that there is incredible persuasive power in allowing yourself to bear that title, a fool, for the sake of the gospel. He had experienced it time and time again that there is something about the willingness to be seen as a fool that changed people's minds about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to go back and show you why this is. So if you'd turn with me to 1 Peter 3.15. We looked at this last week, and I want to look a little bit closer at this text. It's written in your bulletin, but you can also look it up so you can see the context with me. I want to show you why this second point, why being willing to be called a fool for Christ is so powerful in the course of a conversation. So let's read it, starting in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter, the great disciple and apostle of Jesus, says this, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer, for what is right. You are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So we looked at this briefly last week and we focused in the middle of this great verse. And you've maybe seen it or read it before. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that is in you. But it's so important, as is always the case when you're reading the Word of God, the gold is in the context. The gold is in the context. So you come to these great verses. You may have read this before, but you've got to understand what's going on around it. And I get a lot of this contextual uh, information from a theologian named Catherine Gonzalez. So I want to give her credit. And these five verses that we've just read, they weave together to sort of help us to understand why when Christians suffer, particularly for the sake of the gospel, their attitude and their behavior in the midst of that suffering can be a powerful method for evangelism. In the section of this letter right before the the five verses we just read, uh, what you'd find, and you can go back and read that on your own later, is that Peter is calling all Christians everywhere to follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant, which is a title that we often give to Jesus. And here in this passage now, Peter is going to spell out for them what this will actually mean and what this will actually lead to in real life if they follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant. So what we need to remember as we read this is that the church at this point is still a very small group of people when this letter was written, but it's rapidly growing. And it's rapidly growing 
without the help of church committees or special programs of evangelism or fancy techniques or training schools for this. It's just happening organically. And the number of people who are calling upon the name of Jesus, being baptized in His name, saying Jesus Christ is Lord and not Caesar, doing things that could ultimately get them thrown in jail and some of them actually killed, executed for saying that. The number of those people is growing and growing and growing. And what is the reason for this growth? What could motivate a movement like this to spread so fast Why were people coming into this group, thinking people, why were they coming into this group when it meant potentially death? It would be way more sensible to stay away from these Christians, not join them, and yet people kept doing it. People kept joining, even when the Roman government might throw them into jail. So you got to see, people watching this from the outside would say, these are foolish people. Why are they joining this movement? The leader's dead. What is going on? But yet, the movement grows. It's almost growing in this paradoxical manner. The more foolish it seems, the more enticing it is. So it goes something like this. The more willing Christians are to be seen as fools amongst their peers and in their society, the more the church actually grows. What is the reason for this? The reason is that being willing to be seen as a fool is incredibly persuasive. People have to pay attention when you're doing something that's counter to natural reason. Let's take a closer look now at what I mean. So look at the first verse, verse 13. I want to try to explain this to you. Peter says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is a rhetorical question. And what he wants us to be thinking is, of course, no one harms those who do good, right? But then we stop and we think, well, that's in a perfect world. Because the world I live in Plenty of people are getting abused for doing what is good. And so he wants us to start thinking, yeah, there's plenty of times where I do what is good and I'm harmed for it. Because there's plenty of evil people in the world who don't like it when I do good or can gain something from me by taking advantage of my goodness. The person who cuts corners in the business world doesn't wish to be shown up by someone who is careful to do what is right. So they might harm you. 
Greed often dominates life in the fallen world. And those who give generously without hope of return often find themselves without the friendship of those who see no reason to give when there is nothing to be gained. Sometimes it takes the form of minor name-calling like goody-two-shoes. Or sometimes there's real violence for those, by those who live their lives skirting the law or blatantly breaking it. They tend to have little tolerance for those who seek to live justly by both human laws and God's law. Have you had this experience? It's a rhetorical question meant to make us realize in this world, the way it is now, this happens all the time. That people get harmed for trying to do good. And there's plenty of examples in the Bible of this happening. And of course, the choice isn't always easy for us, right? Do I do what's right and good the way God would want me to do it? Or do I just sort of conform to the ways of the world? This text is recognizing that battle. And it's telling us to not be afraid of doing what is good. So think about the way this might play out in your world. As it relates to the idea of being called a fool for doing what is good and right. The narrative goes something like this. Don't be a fool. Just pretend you didn't see those accounting errors. Nobody's going to know. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool if you just... Just keep your mouth shut. Don't bring it up. If you bring it up, you'll probably get fired. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Just do what he wants you to do or she wants you to do. It's not really that big of a deal. Not that many people are going to be affected by it. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Everybody has to do something like that at some point in their career. And so, in this age and every age before us, there's been this pressure for us to conform to the way the world does business, the way the world interacts. The patterns of the world play the world's game. And Peter's saying, of course you'll get harmed for doing what is ultimately right, but do it anyhow. And part of what will happen is you'll be called a fool. That is part of the harm that you'll experience when you do not conform to the way everyone else lives and acts. But he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you're called a fool, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Even when they call you a fool. Even when it hurts financially, physically, socially, do what is right. Because here's why you do it. Verse 15. But in your hearts, 
honor Christ, the Lord as holy. Ultimately, the reason why we're willing to be called a fool in this area of life, doing what is good, doing what is right, even when it hurts, is because we care more about what Jesus thinks of us than we do about what our boss thinks of us or our coworkers think of us or our friends think of us. In our hearts, we revere Christ above all else. It's His opinion that matters. And if we live this way, if we revere in our hearts Jesus Christ above all others, and then because of that, we are able to act in a way counter to the culture, in a way that, that, that points and presses into what's true and good and right and beautiful in the world. When we do that, here's what Peter says, be ready. Verse 15, be ready. Be prepared. Be prepared for what? Be prepared for a question that will always come when you live in this way. Not everyone will ask you this, but certainly some will. I guarantee you, if you live in this way, a question will come. And what is that question? Here's the question. What sort of hope do you have that allows you to live like that? They're calling you a fool. And still you do that? What sort of hope is driving you? So Peter says, always be prepared. Always be ready to answer that question and give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. This is what will happen when you choose to live for God above all else, people will ask you this question. What sort of hope is that? And so you share with them. You share about the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You share that your hope is ultimately found in Jesus. And you might even share that even if I lose my job, even if they kill my outer body, my inward being is being renewed day by day by Jesus. And if I lose my life, He will raise it up again one day, my hope. And we can say that with whatever suffering comes our way, for whatever we might be called a fool for. And I'm telling you, friends, <laughs> your conversations, if you're living this way, willing to be seen even as a fool, will become persuasive when you talk about your hope in this way. But you have to live out your hope in order to talk about your hope. I experienced this um, being seen as a fool uh, many times in my life. Every time I get up here, I feel that way. But <laughs> uh, in particular, I felt it when I left my accounting job with Deloitte. Big accounting firm, uh, making lots of money, relatively, <laughs> for, for what I was doing in life and my age and whatnot. And it was in the middle of the financial crisis of 2008. And they were laying people off, 
left and right. They would send about every month, like uh, they'd send out an email said, we are going to do a mass layoff tomorrow, check your emails, <laughs> just so you don't come into work. And I, I remember praying that God would put me on that list because I felt like he was wanting me to leave this job to pursue ministry. But I didn't want to be seen as a fool. So I thought, well, if they fire me, then it'll be very easy. I can move on. Time and time again, those emails came out. I wasn't laid off. And eventually it got to the point where I said, I, I have to do this. And I remember going and talking to my bosses and the partners in my firm that were on my clients, and I had to explain to them, to look them in the eye and tell them that I was leaving accounting. I was leaving Deloitte. And they were all sort of outwardly very nice, but there were definitely many of them that looked at me like I was a fool. Well, what are you going to do? And at that point, I didn't know. I just feel like God's asking me to leave. And they looked at me. And often, I felt like a fool in their eyes. Are you willing to be seen as a fool for Christ? Now, if you're sitting here, whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, and you're thinking, why would anyone choose this route? Why would anyone choose to be seen as a fool? I just don't know if I can answer yes to that question that I'm willing to be seen as a fool. I'm not sure if it's worth it. Here's the only thing you need to know that will motivate you. And that is this. That Jesus Christ became a fool for you. The Lord God Almighty what Colossians 1 tells us, that Jesus Christ was in the creation of everything. It was through Him that everything was created. And yet, He came and He put on humanity. And He was born into this world as a child for you. He did that for you. And then this boy became a man. And he chose to allow himself to be arrested, to be falsely charged, to be prosecuted for something that was not true. Prosecuted for claiming to be the rightful king, which he was. But he allowed himself to be charged, convicted to death on a cross, and then he allowed himself to be spat upon. He allowed himself to be whipped and lashed. He allowed himself to be mocked publicly as they called him a fool. As he carried his cross through the streets and they yelled at him. And he did it for you. And then he was willing to be nailed to a cross. And they nailed a sign above his head mocking him, which read, King of the Jews. Calling him a fool. This fool cross. 
And there was blood dripping from his face. Why? Because they had made a fool's crown for him out of thorns. And they pressed it into his skull. And the people yelled at him and they mocked him. You claim to be the king. You're only the king of fools. He did that for you. He did that for me. And they cried out to him, if you are who you say you are, save yourself. Call upon your angels. They'll rescue you. But of course, Jesus did not save himself, but he gave himself. He gave himself for you and for me and for everyone that calls upon his name. He gave himself unto death for my sin that I might be forgiven. He bore the name fool because of my sin. This is what Jesus did for us. He became a fool. The creator of the world was called fool for me. And yet I time and time again hesitate to do that for him. I want to ask you again. Are you willing to be seen as a fool for Christ? Are you willing to stand by Jesus even when the world mocks you? Even when they mock Him? Are you willing to openly and publicly admit that Jesus is your King even though they call Him the King of Fools? When suffering comes your way, will you turn Will you reject Him? I'm willing. Call me a fool. I would love to be a fool for Christ. Just like the Apostle Paul. It is a great honor to be a servant of the King of Fools. Because here's why. That fool that they called the dead fool. He didn't stay dead for very long. He rose from the grave three days later, and he proved he was no fool. He proved who the real fools were. And he confirmed it by walking out of the grave, appearing to more than 500 people. And my friends, we might have to endure the title, the label fool, for more than three days. But we're not alone. Jesus still is called a fool and he stands beside us. He's saying, join me because one day is coming when my name will be vindicated once and for all and all those who associate with me, they will not be seen as fools any longer, but they will see that I am the true king. That's going to be a glorious day. And you might go through your whole life having to bear the title with some people you know as fool.
But there is coming a day when you will be proven true, right, and good. Persevere, my friends. And this is my promise to you. If you're willing to artfully and boldly converse with people about the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, if you're unashamed to call yourself a follower of Jesus, my promise to you is that you will be seen by many as a fool. But it is the very fact that you're not ashamed by that label that is so countercultural, that is so shocking to people, that for some, for some, it will be the thing that makes them turn and consider Jesus for the first time. It will be not explained, but it comes through the suffering of playing the fool for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We don't know why You've chosen to be called a fool for us, for our sake. We know that there must not have been any other way. That there must have been no other way to get our attention. That Your power was not enough. That You had to subvert Your power in order to get our attention by Yourself being called a fool. By being hung on a cross. By being buried in a grave. That it was only that that could get our attention and turn us back to You. God, I pray that we would have the courage and boldness as Your people, as those who love and follow You, to do the very same thing for those that we love. Willing to have those kind of unashamed conversations that often to the world make us seem like fools. Pray. We all pray that we might be worthy to be called Christians. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.